Friends, it is the midweeks and we're in 1 Kings 16. This is actually a really interesting chapter to me. It's a real delight to be here just working through scriptures a bit slower. I'm seeing things that I haven't always seen before and seeing how the book is put together, which is a real delight to me. And through seeing how the word of God is written, constructed, I hear God's voice more clearly speaking from the past, from the word of God to me, and I see his ways more clearly. And that's really the joy of a deep study on the Bible, of doing a chapter by chapter study of the Bible, is that we get to know God better in how he's ruled and reigned and what he's doing. And so this is a real joy. We're in chapter 16, and it's going to lead us into the life of Ahab. Ahab is one of the most famous kings from the Old Testament, particularly because he's a bad king and because he's married to Jezebel. But this is when we're going to slow down in the story of kings and meet Elijah and Elisha. Um, You may have heard me talk about chiasms before, how stories are written um, in a sense where they progress towards a centerpiece and then they hit that centerpiece and then they regress out with some thematic parallels. Just use a bunch of big words. Well, the book of First and Second Kings, the core, the center of it, is the lives of the two prophets, Elisha and Elijah. And Elijah's life kind of ends the book of First Kings, and Elisha picks up in the beginning of Second Kings, and something like that. Uh, I may have gotten it a little bit wrong, so forgive me. I'm going off the top of my head here. But these two prophets' lives are the centerpiece of the book of Kings, saying to us, hey, God rules. Even in a, in a story about unfaithful kings, God still reigns, and he's reigning through his power prophets. Many of the prophets are just proclaiming prophets, where they're going to proclaim the future or proclaim God's will. Elijah and Elisha are power prophets, where they perform many, many, many miracles. And we're coming towards their life. In the last chap- few chapters, we've covered really generations. And by the end of this chapter, we're going to meet Ahab and we're going to take many, many chapters just working through Ahab's reign with the life of Elijah and Elisha. So with that overview, we're still looking at King Baasha. Remember, Baasha put to death Jeroboam. Jeroboam was appointed by the Lord to reign over ten tribes in punishment to Solomon for Solomon's um, idolatry and his heart turning away from the Lord. And Baasha was used by the Lord to end Jeroboam's uh, dynasty, so the handing off of the kingship from one generation to the next. And now Baasha is going to come under judgment for his own unbelief here. And we're going to have the throne of Israel, the ten tribes, um, kind of bouncing around between people for a bit until it settles on Ahab. Verse 1, And the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Baasha, saying, Since I exalted you out of the dust and made you leader over my people Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel to sin, provoking me to anger with their sins, behold, I will utterly sweep away Baasha and his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. Anyone who belongs to Sorry, anyone belonging to Baasha who dies in the city, the dog shall eat, and anyone who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens shall eat. All right, so in the last chapter, I mentioned how there was no prophetic word about Baasha being appointed as king, and he conspired against Jeroboam and eliminated Jeroboam and all his household. And so now there's something I'm unclear about here. 
the prophet comes to Basha after all of this stuff with this judgment oracle, and God claims the exalting of Basha out of the dust to make him leader over the people of Israel. But I'm not clear if um, this happened prophetically before and it's just not mentioned, or if God is just claiming his providence and his rulership over all of human history. The fact that Basha took over was under the hand of the Lord, and he did it even if there was no prophetic proclamation. And I'm leaning towards there was no previous prophetic proclamation, but that the Lord God, as ruler over the universe, has the right to go to any king and say, I exalted you, which he does. With later pagan kings, totally pagan kings, he'll just claim, you know, I established you. And in Daniel, we have that very famous song of praise where Daniel praises the Lord because he sets up kings and deposes kings and he rules over all the kingdoms of the earth. They're all his to judge. And so I'm I'm uh, seeing this proclamation as the Lord just saying, I'm in charge of all this stuff. And also uh, a rebuke over Basha because he should have known better than to repeat Jeroboam's sins because of how things went with Jeroboam. Very likely had heard the prophecy against Jeroboam. Uh, he did actually because the prophecy was very public. So he should have known better than to keep doing Jeroboam's sins, knowing that God had judged Jeroboam for those sins. So Basha gets this rebuke. The same bad things that happened to Jeroboam are going to happen to Basha. Um, the, the same way Basha took out all of Jeroboam's family and all of his king's kinship is going to happen to him too. Same sins, same consequences for sins. Uh, that's the message of the life of Basha. Verse 5. Now the rest of the acts of Basha and what he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And Basha slept with his father and was buried at Tirzah, and Elah, his son, reigned in his place. Remember, Tirzah has become the place where the kings dwell in the northern kingdom up to this point, which is good to note because by the end of this chapter, Samaria is going to take over as the capital city of Israel. Moreover, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Basha and his house, both because of all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of his hands, and being like the house of Jeroboam, and also because he destroyed it. So it looks like here God is saying that the judgment against Basha is coming against him because he acted just like Jeroboam beforehand, uh, leading the people into false worship. But also there's a judgment on Basha because of how he destroyed Jeroboam and his people. And this happens a few times in the history of the world where God will tell to somebody, I'm appointing disaster against you, and he will superintend or rule over that disaster coming, but then he will also judge the person who brought that disaster because of how their heart was. And so what we hear, see here is that Basha destroyed Jeroboam with a wicked heart, not in a obedient heart, kind of like a Jehu later on in the book is going to do some work in faith to a prophetic word. Basha here was acting selfishly and destroyed Jeroboam's family selfishly, and he's going to be judged for doing it, even though God prophesied it how it came about was a great sin and so Basha is liable for the sin in what he did even though God had prophesied it as his will against uh, Jeroboam so somewhat complicated but also this is the word of God to us and so we're meant to help our minds be trained to think like God thinks a person can fulfill God's providential prophetic decree and because his heart is in unbelief and rebellion even when he does what God said would happen he can be judged for it uh, 
it looks like it is fulfilling God's will in one sense, but his heart is in rebellion against God, and so it's still sin. That's, I think, the best way to see it. And again, you contrast that to Lord Jesus Christ, who both did God's will, but did it with a perfect desire to do God's will, with a perfect submitted heart, with no rebellion in his heart. And so Jesus's actions were perfectly pleasing for the Father because he did what God wanted with a heart that was pure. And so there was no sin found in him whatsoever. And also, this would be contrast to David, who did what uh, sought to please God from the heart in all that he did. Verse 8. In the 26th year of Asa, the king of Judah, Elah, the son of Basha, began to reign over Israel in Tirzah, and he reigned two years. So it's another short reign. But a servant, Zimri, commander of half of his chariots, conspired against him. And when he was at Tirzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, who was over the household of Tizrah, Zimri came in and struck him down and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, the king of Judah, and reigned in his place. All right, so here we have another conspiracy uh, regicide, so a king, killing of a king, and it's a murder. And so again, it fulfills God's uh, word that Basha's household would come to an end. But Zimri is also going to go down as a bit of a proverb for a uh, betrayer, kind of like a Judas. And he's only going to have the shortest reign ever. It's like seven days or something like that because he's a Judas and God's really against Zimri. Um, but again, so Zimri's going to bring about the end of Basha's dynasty. Basha's going to have one descendant and then Zimri's going to kill him. And then Zimri's going to have a super short reign. Verse 11, when he began to reign, as soon as he had seated himself on his throne, he struck down all the house of Basha. He did not leave a single male of his relatives or his friends. Thus Zimri destroyed all the house of Basha, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Basha by Jehu the prophet. For all the sins of Basha and the sins of Elah his son, which they sinned, in which they made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord of God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So all we know about Elah is he reigned two years and he was a drunk when he got murdered. So, and he was an idolater. Again, contrast that to Asa, who's ruling in the southern kingdom, who had de dedicated himself to removing the idols. Verse 15. Now the, in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri reigned seven days in Tirzah. Now the troops were encamped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, and the troops were encamped, heard, it said, Zimri has conspired and he's killed the king. Therefore all Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that day in the camp. So Omri went up from Gibbethon and all Israel with him, and they besieged Tirzah. And when Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire and died because of the sins he had committed, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam, and for his sin, which he committed, making Israel to sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and all the conspiracy that he made, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So you have this scene, you have this seven-day reign of Zimri. And in this amount of time, he managed to kill all the family and followers of Basha. But as what often happens in human history, when somebody usurps the kingdom, um, they, it's, it's very hard to reign in their place. And very often other people, when the king is killed, will think, well, I'm just as good at, I've got just as much right to reign as the guy who killed the king. And so the armies will often pick their own person to fight for the reign of a country. This happened in Rome lots. There was this one year called the year four emperors when uh, four different guys sat on the throne of Rome in 
one year because they just just all these generals arose after I think it was after Nero was killed um, that there was just civil war and so this is happening as well um, uh, Basia has died after a fairly long reign of 24 years his son r reigns for just two years but there's obviously some instability he's murdered and because of that there's just so much instability that there's a bit of a squabble over who's going to be king um, Zimri kills the followers of Basia, but when he hears that Omri has been made king uh, and has besieged the city, Zimri just gives up. So he obviously sees that his soldiers are no match for the army that's come. And especially because he was a ruler over chariots, and chariots are no good in defending a siege. They're just good out in the field. What he does is he's going to have like a, if I can't have it, nobody can moment, and he goes and burns down the king's house or the citadel over him, thus making Tirza a place nobody wants to live, which is probably why Omri goes uh, ultimately somewhere else. Uh, verse 21. Then the people of Israel were decided, divided into two parts. Half the people followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath, to make him king, and half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri overcame the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath. So Tibni died, and Omri became king. Now, there might be some theology in here where idolaters don't get stability, um, that, their, that their political life is just as unstable as their theological life. There might be a case to be made here, but again, what you keep seeing is there's this real struggle to rule over the throne. First Zimri, then Omri, and then another contender, Tibni, shows up, and Omri has to overcome Tibni. So there's lots of civil war going on here. And it's not like this never happened before. There was civil war in the days of David. You might remember. Excuse me. But here it's just this instability. But Omri ends up coming out on top. And he reigns for 12 years, six of those years in Tirzah. And Omri does get a bit of a dynasty, and it is one of the worst dynasties in the history of Israel. Omri and Ahab and Ahab's descendants, um, especially with Jezebel in there, they are some of the worst things that ever happened to Israel. So this isn't a good dynasty. And, um, and so there you go. Verse 24, he bought the hill of Samaria from Shimmer for two talents of silver, and he fortified the hill and called the name of the city that he built Samaria after the name of Shemer, the owner of the hill. And so here you have Samaria becoming the capital city of Israel under the reign of Omri. And Samaria is going to be the contender against Jerusalem. And as far as I understand it, this is the same location, more or less, of the Samaritans, like the Samaritan woman. And so this is the history of that area. Maybe it gives it a little bit more background when you hear about the, the kind of racial animosity between the Samaritans and the Israelites. Lots of stuff happens between now and then, but the, the, uh, the Judeans, the Jews, who are gathered around Jerusalem, you know, the city of God, they might look at Samaria, which is the city that was on a hill that was just kind of bought by Omri, who was a terrible king, and it would just be this, like, bad history to have if you're a Samaritan to know that the founding of your city was just some guy named Shemer uh, sold it to a bad king named Omri. 
Verse 25, And Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did more evil than all who were before him, for he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sin that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Omri that he did, and the might that he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the king of Israel? And Omri slept with his fathers, and was buried in Samaria. And Ahab his son reigned in his place. This is that Ahab, big bad Ahab, who... Uh, is going to be a big problem for Israel and who Elijah is going to contend with. And I think he's, um, we're going to see... Well, let's just keep reading. In the 38th year of Asa, the king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. So that's a fairly long reign again. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So you have this progression of sinning. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which means particularly that false worship with the golden calves, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. So this is when Baal worship really gets introduced into Israel as a, uh, an official cult. Um, Jezebel brings it in, and of course... Uh, Elijah is going to have his big contest with the priests of Baal in a chapter or two. Um, but this is when Baal worship, and Baal is a real thorn in the side of Israel. This is when it's brought in officially, officially with Ahab marrying Jezebel, who brings it into the northern kingdom. 32. And he erected an altar to Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him in his day. Okay, so that's that's uh, Ahab, and that's the big summary about him, that he made Baal worship the official, if not the, uh, but probably the official religion of the northern kingdom, and established an altar in this new city. So this new city of Samaria that has built up by Omri, um, Ahab dedicated it to Baal, it looks like. Okay, then we get this little side note here. Verse 34. In his days, Heel, or Heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, uh, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, you might remember in the book of Joshua, when they destroy uh, Jericho, Joshua doesn't really want this city rebuilt as a punishment against it. And so he says, if anyone tries to rebuild it, they're going. it's going to cost them, you know, their firstborn and their secondborn. The foundation, the firstborn, and the, the gate set up at the cost of the secondborn. And this happened. This guy named Heel uh, either didn't know his history or didn't believe in it. And so he sets to rebuild the city of Jericho. And the curse that Joshua spoke comes true. And now, perhaps the reason this is thrown in here now is it's a reminder that God doesn't really forget his word. You've got the northern kingdom that is really spiraling out of control politically and religiously. And you might think that just because they don't believe in the Lord anymore, his word might not count for them. What you don't know can't hurt you, theologically speaking. But in this time, Heel sets to build Jericho and this warning from hundreds and hundreds of years ago when Joshua had the invasion. Um, 
it comes true because God doesn't forget his prophecies. God doesn't forget his word. God can adjust his word if he wants to. You know, he can bring that new covenant in there, but time doesn't make God forget his word. And so now with the fulfillment of this Joshua prophecy, um, we are reminded and we're meant to go and think back and just remember the, the word of Moses, the word towards David, the previous prophecies that were made in the book of Kings and just reminded that God does not forget his word. He's faithful to his word, even over generations, even over centuries. Now, this is a bad prophecy for Hale because of his disobedience to the word he, uh, he suffered, but it is a good reminder to us that God is faithful to his word. And we have his word that, um, if we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. And God is faithful to his word, whether he spoke it yesterday whether or whether that word was written through the Apostle Paul you know, 2,000 years ago. God remembers and God is faithful. And if we bring our faith to God's word and submit to it and respond to it with faith, it is fulfilled in us through our faith, through our belief. So that is the word of God in First Kings 16. I hope you're blessed and let us be faithful. Let's just remember that Omri's and Ahab's don't just come out of nowhere. There are people who kind of choose to not know their history, not know their past, and not submit to the word of God. But we can be like an Asa. We can uh, be people who make the change to be more faithful to God. We can start in our own home. We can start in our own heart. And it isn't inevitable that a people would just spiral farther and farther away from the true worship of God. And what we're going to pick up in the next chapter is that in the midst of the northern kingdom just going completely out of control, politically and spiritually, God is going to raise up Elijah the Tishbite, who is going to go to war against unbelief and the idols, and he's going to be fighting for faith in the northern kingdom on behalf of the Lord. Amen.